Hey folks, let's spend some time with friends up north. Pat Kreitlow of Up North News is on Lake Wissota. Sarah Yacoub of the Monaco Brewing Company Super Pack is on the Mississippi River. And up on Lake Monaco is Kirk Bangstead of the Monaco Brewing Company. Wherever you are, welcome. You're up north. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Up North Podcast. I'm Kirk Bankstad from the Monaco Brewing Company. I'm Pat Kreitlow, and uh, Sarah Yacoub is off this week, I, I believe, just battening down the hatches uh, because the what, what can only appear to be a derecho is moving across Iowa as we uh, tape on Wednesday evenings here. So um, I, it wouldn't surprise me a bit if she's trying to make sure that the, the house doesn't blow away. I, I'm not going <laughs> to lie, Kirk. I'm a little distracted uh, about the weather this Wednesday evening. The prospect of a storm bringing tornadoes to areas that have more than a foot of snow on the ground. There's something, yeah. something ain't right here. Look, fishy. Not, it's so very look, fishy. So the pan, you got the pandemic. You got the variants. You, of course, got the zombies who've, whose brains have been eaten out there. You've got the insurrectionists right within our Congress. You've got the larger wildfires, the thinning polar caps. Now we've got tornadoes in December. I am pretty sure we're living in a Hollywood nightmare where nobody in charge listens to the scientists. So it is only a matter of time until we hear about the giant meteor coming our way. I am... I, I, would, I would bet on that at that at this point, which is uh, why I've moved from my usual weekly old fashioned here to the Christmas coffee mug with hot chocolate and and other stuff. <laughs> cheers, cheers, Pat. We haven't we haven't uh, we haven't. Oh man, my oh here. Cheers, my friend. Good to good to see you again. Um, yeah. So I read the funniest thing today on Facebook that somebody that the curve that was coming towards Wisconsin of like tornadoes and horridness looked like the bass clef on a music scale. It does. Yeah, you're right. Because <laughs> it was like a, and so it was, I mean that, but it was terrible. And what the heck is going on? I mean, obviously it's climate change, but you well, know. And, and it's got quite, it, it, the reason it looks like that is because of, of the bend and, and the, the more that bend, you know, the, the, the crazier, the, winds are going to be so we're we're in for something here tonight and we hope that for those of you who listen to this in podcast form over the weekend um have weathered things all right and then we can just move on finally to enjoying you know the the, the preparations for christmas new year's the rest of the holiday season which frankly we, we've all earned after this year um we we have endured two years like nobody ever wanted nobody ever predicted um, and so we have to spend the rest of this time toward the holiday season, trying to think of the, you know, the angels of our better nature and who are the, who are the people out there that have inspired us. Uh, and part of what led to that was, did you see who Time Magazine chose for their person of the year? Oh man, Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Yeah, so the, disappointing. A billionaire who thought he'd go play in space when you've got, you know, healthcare workers, you've got that Capitol Police officer, you know, who, who kept uh, basically the government intact. You've got the bus drivers and the teachers. And so I, I would, uh, I think we put up a question at upnorthnewswi.com uh, about who is your person of the year. And so I, I hope that everybody at some point somewhere uh, on social media or what has you or what have you thinks about that and uh, and really lays out who who their person of the year is who who helped get us through this year and kirk i would like to nominate you for getting me through this year if i didn't have these <laughs> weekly conversations with you 
Well, I do agree, Pat, that, um, you know, this is something I look forward to because like there's so many people that are probably just bottling up all their stress and frustrations whenever there's terrible news, uh, like, you know, like the gerrymandering stuff that happened a few weeks ago. And at least, I mean, the news is still bad. We're still dealing with, with crazy stuff, but at least I'm able to like vent with you once a week and kind of like think more deeply and think more broadly than just bottling it all up and being mad. Right. <laughs> you know? And we've got somebody to vent with somebody who um, chief inspector Gableman has threatened to jail as he runs his uh, sham investigation into the 2020 elections. He has threatened to jail the mayor of Madison, Sajia Rhodes Conway. And we're going to talk with her about that and the entire uh, Gableman uh, investigation, quote unquote, after this here up north. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in folks from prison and time keeps dragging on. <laughs> Billy, we're going to Folsom Prison Blues. That's that's how you introduce the, the mayor of Madison Kirk. That's what yeah, she's she's on her way to jail, dude. She's sure, on her way sure. to jail. Welcome back to the Up North Podcast. I'm Pat Kreitlow along with Kirk Bankstead. Joining us now is Satya Rhodes Conway, the 58th mayor of Madison Kirk. Okay, so get this. We I we did we did a little research. We we Google stocked Mayor uh Mayor Satya, Mayor Rhodes Conway, and before I just wanted to say a few things. This is awesome. Before she was elected mayor, she was a managing director of the Mayor's Innovation Project and a senior associate at the Center on Wisconsin Strategy at UW-Madison for more than a decade. So it means she knows her stuff when it comes to running cities, and she worked with cities all across the country to implement policies that promote sustainability, equity, and democracy. And, and democracy. That's the thing Ooh. that really gets me is this whole concept of up until not too long ago, we would have said, Oh, promoting democracy. That seems pretty obvious. I mean, who's against democracy? Well, now we know, which takes us to Mike Gableman, Robin Boss, and uh, most, but not all, I guess, of the Republicans in the Wisconsin legislature based on recent events. Uh, Gableman, who we refer to here as the Inspector Clouseau of election investigations, bellered like a cornered bull a couple of weeks ago, huffing and puffing before a legislative committee, rudely interrupting Democratic lawmakers, trying to hold him accountable to the taxpayers, and threatening jail time, Kirk, for the mayor here and her Green Bay colleague over a matter of testifying behind closed doors the way Gableman is demanding it. All right, so Madam Mayor, have you prepared for whatever prison job you'll have to do when Gableman sends you up the river? <laughs> well, if Pat and Kirk, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's great to see you guys and and, I'm really glad that you are talking about democracy and the preservation thereof here in the state of Wisconsin, because, uh, you know, as funny as it is, these are dark times and we have people attacking us left and right. I mean, mostly right uh, for uh, the election, uh, the outcome of the November 2020 election. And I really do think that it's um, the root of all of this is people's um, dissatisfaction with the fact that President Biden won that election and um, and their desire to circumvent free and fair elections in the future. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors on top of that, but I think that's what's at the root of it. It, it is very much at the root of it because in no other advanced democracy do we have a, 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 a an entire party dedicated to discouraging and even prosecuting 
attempts to vote or to encourage voting rather right. than working toward getting every possible qualified person out there to the polls. And that's where this comes down. A, 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 I don't want to say the root of this because it, it gives it too much credit, but what is apparently behind a lot of this is the fact that a, a very large group uh, run by or funded by a very wealthy person uh, distributed some $10 million to 214 Wisconsin municipalities, but legislative Republicans have singled out only five of the cities that got it, Madison being one of them. So Madam Mayor, can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the group, the, the funds, and what, what it was used for, especially in trying to get people to vote safely during a pandemic? Uh, let me take you even a, a step farther back from that, because the, the sin that we're accused of is making it easier for people to vote in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, that what we apparently have done wrong is encourage people to use absentee ballots and given them drop boxes to return them in. And, you know, we have encouraged people to register to vote and to exercise the franchise. We've encouraged people to stay safe while they were doing it. So, you know, we found ourselves in early 2020 staring down the first ever pandemic election uh, that this team has had to do. And we, after the April 2020 election, um, we were all like, we were overwhelmed by the uh, amount of absentee ballots that we had to process. Our clerk's office had never had to do that kind of volume of absentee voting before. And we looked around and said, November 2020 is gonna be even bigger. We have to get ready. We have to figure out what did we learn from April? And what do we need to get in place for November? And how are we gonna do this? And so that took a bunch of different forms. So we did our own internal debrief and processing and our clerks got busy trying to figure out how to make this work. But I also reached out to other cities, frankly, all across the country and asked, what are you doing? How can we do this? And so the, there were a group of mayors here in Wisconsin that started talking about this. And one of them said, hey, there's this organization called the Center for Tech and Civic Life. They help cities run elections well. Uh, they are offering grants. Maybe we should apply. And we were also at the same time saying to the state, you know, saying like, we don't have enough resources here. Like we, we literally don't have enough money to print all these ballots and envelopes. Like we don't know how we're gonna buy personal protective equipment. Um, and the legislature, as you know, was doing absolutely nothing about this. Right. Um, and we were begging for rule changes, things to make it easier to keep people safe. Um, and so, you know, I didn't have money in my budget to to make all this happen, and so yeah, we we asked for help. And, and you did, and you weren't you were far from it because, like I said, uh, the the Center for Tech and Civic Life, uh, which is funded primarily by Mark Zuckerberg, who founded Facebook, but it is not a Facebook endeavor. It is his money that he's put into this group. As well, and Pat, actually, fun fact: they got the Facebook money after they approved our grants. Yeah, so. so this is this isn't just you know, these five big cities in Wisconsin. It's 214 municipalities nationwide, 2,500 election agencies nationwide. Money that was That's used right. for what election workers, voting equipment, PPE, like you said, the drop boxes, all those things. 
meant to make it uh, safer. And, and as as you were getting at here, this this could have been offset by a legislature that wanted to do more to encourage safer voting. But you know, in 2020, they were in the middle of going nine months on a paid vacation and That's right. giving absolutely nothing. That's right. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. That's what we did with the funds. We bought supplies for our polling places. We bought cleaning supplies. We bought personal protective equipment. We installed 14 very pretty drop boxes, mostly outside of our fire stations, so they'll be safe. Um, and uh, we helped to increase absentee voting. Uh, we made that easier for folks. Um, we bought some equipment that would allow you to do drive-through registration uh, for folks. And um, we actually started uh, paying our polling places a cleaning fee so they could clean up after folks were there. And you know, we did, we paid our poll workers more because they were taking risks during a pandemic. And this is something that I think is really important and people need to remember uh, is that our elections here in Wisconsin are run by municipal clerks, nonpartisan municipal clerks and by poll workers who are your friends and neighbors. So when people are complaining about how the election was run, they are attacking the integrity of their friends and neighbors who work the polls and of our municipal clerks who frankly are the salt of the earth. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And so this is, this is, I mean, I just wanted to repeat something that was said. I don't think it was uh, focused on enough. It's like, it's like our cities in Wisconsin didn't have enough money to run elections the right way. And our Republican majority legislature didn't give them that extra money in the midst of a pandemic, which was scary for everybody and including poll workers who have to go out there and risk their health to actually run an election. So right. that it's just insane that um, that now, I mean, it, it's obviously insane. It's perpetuating this big lie. The Gableman investigation is a complete sham. Um, I've got you, we've got you on our podcast and I know this, I don't even want to spend that much more time on it because this is such a sham, but it's, it's just kind of funny. And that's why we've made light of it. We hope you don't go to jail. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I hope I don't go to jail either. <laughs> and, and, and I will, I will give, I will bake, I will bake goods for you if you end up in jail and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to make it as pleasant as possible. But I wanted to switch to a broader picture uh, outside of the Gable investigation. We're hearing that there's a lot of county boards. Uh, we, we interviewed Hans Breitenmoser, the Fair Maps guy in Lincoln County a couple weeks ago. And he said, there's so many people running for county boards that are coming out of the woodwork. And it's not a pretty picture. It, these guys are kind of part of the Trump cult. And they're, uh, they're, they're running for one reason. And that is because they believe that the elections were rigged uh, uh, you know, for Biden. And they now it's, think it's their patriotic duty to, to make sure that whoever the election officials are in their county uh, will answer to Trump in 2022. So it scares the bejesus out of me. I wanted to see, you know, what have you heard? Um, and the question is, what can count? What can county boards? I know you're the mayor of a city, but you know local government way better than me. What can county boards or city, city towns, towns do to the elections? How can they mess them up if they wanted to? You know, it, it's a good question. And, and the first thing I'd say is that anybody who questions how elections were run and whether they were done fairly should go work the polls for an election. 
because you will learn a ton about how elections actually happen and how transparent and safe they are here in Wisconsin. So if, I, I, if I could interject about Madison, that, I will say that um, one of my favorite people to talk to, State Representative Jody Emerson of Eau Claire, is among those who have a bill out there that would require that uh, elected officials have to serve a shift as a poll worker someplace. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, in, in, <laughs> absolutely. I, I've worked the polls, mm -hmm. at, you know, and I'm happy to do it again. And I, I think that anybody who wants to try and change the rules around elections should have to work the polls so you understand what you're talking about. Um, but yes, it, you know, I think mostly it comes down to resources, right? Whether or not a local government, a county board is going to dedicate to the resources that are needed for democracy. And, but I'm sure that they could find all sorts of ways to interfere, uh, you know, with the work of clerks, right? Because again, our elections are run by clerks and, uh, you know, elected officials should really stay out of the way. I, I view my job as an elected official to make sure my clerk has sufficient resources to do her job. And that's what I, you know, that's my role in this whole thing. So about and, that, so now, about that nowadays to protect her. <laughs> from the attacks that she's getting. Exactly, but, and, and, the, and the attacks her, you know, keep coming. To but... your point, it, I think it's really important that people who believe in democracy run for local office, right? Because it, first of all, it, elections should be contested, right? And second of all, it, you know, I don't want anybody getting complacent thinking, oh, we elected a president, right? And that he's gonna take care of it. Well, no, elections are run at the local level. We need people on city councils, in mayor's offices, on county boards, as county executives that are that believe in democracy and want to make it easier for people to vote, not harder. And, and, and it's not, uh, it should be easier to vote because it's hard enough as it is to, to administer elections and run them properly. And one concern that I, I think most people who follow elections understand, but people who don't follow elections and folks up north uh, who, who see what, what um, happens in, in larger cities, Madison, Milwaukee, Green Bay, they say that the, the, the conspiracy, the big conspiracy is that, you know, there was suddenly this bump in the number of votes that were reported overnight. Um, I, I'm not sure if some folks aren't sure how math works, but if you are in a place with more ballots, it takes longer to it's count. It's longer them. to count them. Yeah. Well, and, and you know what that's really about, Pat, and is that there are some cities that do a central count of their absentee ballots. So all the absentee ballots go to one place, they get run through the central count machines, and whenever that count is done, you know, then those numbers get announced. And so the more absentee ballots you have, the longer that's going to take, because we can't start counting ballots until election day, right? Here in Madison, we count our absentee ballots at the polls. So we, all the absentee ballots get come in, they get sorted by polling place, they go out to the polling places, they get run during the day uh, as the poll workers have, a have time to run them. And then at the end of the night, they finish running all of them and then all the reports, all the results are reported together. So you're not gonna see a big number bump coming from Madison, but you are from gonna see it from places that do the central count model. And this is just you know, a choice of the local government and how they wanna do it. It's not mysterious, you know, it's not nefarious. It's just the way that they run the election. And again, anybody's welcome to go and watch them do it. Exactly. Uh, All in of the our minute elections are, are transparent and you can have 
folks watch the polls. In the minute that we have left, we should take it back to the Gableman investigation because we've been, uh, you know, joking about it. But but again, it is something that um, has cost taxpayers a lot of money. It's going to go well into next year, and he does have these threats out there against you. So in the short time we have left, what is the status of that? What are what are you or your attorneys doing? And what, what do you think is ultimately going to happen here? Well, I think there's a few things that are important to know. First of all, the subpoenas that he issued were frankly unnecessary. If they wanted, if the legislative committee wanted to talk to us about how we ran our elections, they just had to issue an invitation. I'd be happy to walk up the block and talk to them, right? Mm -hmm. um, the subpoenas that they issued are only really to compel people to testify in front of the legislative committee. Um, and then, so then everything that they've done since then is just really doesn't have any legal standing, right? In terms of trying to, to arrest us or compel us to testify behind closed doors, we don't think any of that has any legal standing. So we're gonna let this work itself out in the courts. Uh, we're confident that we're on strong legal ground but again, you know, we've provided a bunch of open records information. I'm happy to answer questions to the legislature. You know, there's no mystery here. All right. Okay. Kirk, I don't think you're going to have to work on the baked goods, but thank you for putting yourself on standby for that. <laughs> Mayor Sachi Rhodes, I appreciate we it. really appreciate you giving us an update. I uh, look forward to doing it again real soon. Thank you so much. Thanks take so much. Take good care, folks. All right. We'll take a break, come back and talk about the latest in uh, fighting gerrymandering after this. You're up north. Welcome back to the cabin. This is uh, Kirk Bankstead at the Up North podcast, and obviously we had to play a little Iggy Pop corruption for the next uh, next guest we're going to have. You here. know, for somebody that that didn't want to pick out the music early on when we started the show, you've really started to hit your stride here. Um, you <laughs> you may have this full time after next week. Next week we're doing we're doing Christmas tunes, but after that you're you got this full time. Hey, before we uh, get to our guest Doug Poland, I want to uh, take care of all the fine print first. And that includes thanking our hosts at Devil Radio, uh, where you can um, tune in either at News Talk 92.7 or get the Devil Radio app where you can listen to our show and all their shows on demand. On the weekends, you can catch us either on our website, upnorthpodcast.com, and all the usual places where you subscribe to podcasts. You can watch us on YouTube by searching for Up North Podcast. You can also find the video version on the Facebook page of the Monaco Brewing Company, you can reach us by email by writing to info at upnorthpodcast.com. And you can find the work that I do on a daily basis over at upnorthnewswi.com. Don't forget the WI or search upnorthnewswi on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All right. So I have the honor of introducing our next guest. Uh, his name is uh, Doug Poland. And Doug works for the best new nonprofit in Wisconsin and I know of it's called law forward and these guys like are so essential to Wisconsin it's unbelievable they're a group of really awesome lawyers that have raised a bunch of money from people who care about democracy in Wisconsin to fight for democracy so this organization are the ones that are fighting against the Republican majority's gerrymandered maps so like, he, like if, if anybody's going to know the state of what's going on with Wisconsin gerrymandering, it's our guest, Doug Poland. So Doug was up. He told me earlier today when I asked him to be on the show, he was up until 2.30 a.m. yesterday, like 
preparing fair maps. Like when we've talked about fair maps for 10 years, like this is a guy that helped draw the fair ones or helped bring in all the information from people who cared about democracy to put these maps together. And they submitted it to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Now, uh, so we're gonna so we're gonna ask Doug what's going on. First of all, Doug, the Supreme Court like two weeks ago gave us horrible news, uh, and they said that they were gonna start with uh, the Repu- like the ten year ago maps that the Republicans gerrymandered, which were pretty awful. So my question to you, it's a multi part question, is can you update us what happened like today with the fair maps since you know the Supreme Court dashed our hopes. Um, you know, what you plan to do to try to fix stuff. And finally, is there any hope for Wisconsin to have fair maps, you know, in, in the next 10 years? Of course there's hope. We have Doug on the case. Come on. Kirk. <laughs> there, What's there's the likelihood? Al- there, there's, uh, there's always hope, right? For those of us who, who have seen Rogue One, we know rebellions are built on hope, right? Um, well, Kirk, <laughs> thanks for the introduction. I appreciate it. Just, just to make sure that, um, uh, that I clarify, I am not by any means a one-man show here. Um, so uh, I'm actually a partner at a firm called Stafford Rosenbaum in Madison. I co-chair our election and political law team. I also have a position, a non-paid position with Law Forward. Um, uh, so Stafford and Law Forward. And then we also have another tremendous partner called the Campaign Legal Center in Washington, DC, who's co-counsel with us as well. They're, they're, our, they're working with us in the trenches on this case too. Um, Basically, two weeks ago, November 30th, the Wisconsin State Supreme Court released an opinion, and they said the criteria they're going to use to adopt new state legislative and congressional districts this year are going to start with what they call a least changes or least change approach. And so they're going to, they want everybody to start with those districts that were adopted in 2011, slightly modified by a federal court in 2012, and then make the least change possible from those districts to account for the differences in population, the population change that's happened from 2010 when the census was taken to 2020 when the most recent census was taken. So we're just gonna shift population and that's it. The reason that was such a blow, the reason that was so difficult is that a least change approach, the way that they identified it, wouldn't take into account a number of things that we believe should be taken into account, like what we call partisan fairness. It does not mean proportional representation. It just means that we want to give political parties an equal opportunity or an equal chance to be able to win in any given district. Meaning that if Republicans get 52% of the vote and that gives them 50% of the seats in the state assembly, then in the same election, if you draw the district in a fair way that has what we call partisan symmetry, if Democrats get 52% of the vote, then they should be able to get 50% of the seats in the assembly. But the way the districts were drawn in 2011 by the Republican-controlled Assembly and Senate and signed into law by Governor Walker has an incredible asymmetry. So the Republicans need a much lower vote share statewide to get a majority of the Assembly than the the Democrats. So the Democrats have to win like 57% vote share statewide, even just to get 50 of the 99 Assembly seats. So we wanted that to be taken into consideration. The Supreme Court said, nope, not gonna do it. We're not gonna look at partisanship, um, partisan impact of these maps at all. We're just not gonna look at partisan fairness. Um, And that was a disappointment. So what's happening 
So, so why were you up till two thirty last night? Like, what what was this process? Yeah, tell, us, tell us about what what the activity was, including you know Governor Evers uh, uh, submitted some maps uh, today to the state Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could tell you that it was only one night that we were up that late, but we have a team of eleven lawyers and we have three expert witnesses, and everybody has been cranking for two weeks now, yeah. um, getting ready for the filings today. So the state Supreme Court set a deadline for today, December fifteenth, for all nine of the parties to the state court case to submit proposed state legislative and congressional districts to the court, along with expert reports um, in support of those. This is incredibly sophisticated litigation. You need people who are academics, who are experts in this to be able to say, um, uh, to give testimony as to why these maps are the best maps. So the governor submitted proposed maps. My, my team submitted proposed maps for the parties that we represent. Um, the state legislators submitted theirs. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty didn't actually submit maps, but they're supporting the legislatures. There are a whole bunch of different part, different groups that submitted proposed districts to the court. Now what's going to happen is in two weeks um, on December 30th, we're going to have replies. And so we're going we're to file new briefs with the state Supreme Court saying these are the problems with everybody else's maps and these are why ours are the best. And then on January 4th, we'll have the final word on it where everybody will submit their final briefs. And the Supreme Court has reserved the week of January 18th to either hold a hearing or maybe even take some evidence and issue a ruling about the maps that it's going to adopt as the maps for Wisconsin for the next decade. Okay, so Doug, we already have a sense because we know what's, I mean, we've, if anybody's lived in Wisconsin for the last 10 years, we've seen Supreme Court elections being bought and sold uh, by Republicans, like flooding outstate flooded money. Uh, we do have we do have a Supreme Court where there is a majority of conservative judges or judges who have won election based on Republican money that's funded their elections, even though it's nonpartisan elections. Um, they did rule that we're going to start with with a previously gerrymandered map situation. So, I mean, give us your honest assessment of what the likelihood is for this kind of rigged conservative Wisconsin Supreme Court to choose your fair maps. Yeah, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give you a word of hope here because I am actually hopeful. Um, so we, we haven't finished completely with our analysis of all the maps, but as we've done it so far, um, ours are really the best um, in a, across the board. We beat everybody else on a whole lot of metrics. We've got the best compliance with the Voting Rights Act. We've got the highest, what we call core retention. In other words, keeping districts essentially the same. We've, we've got really the best maps for so many reasons. And so we said, we're, we don't like what the Supreme Court said on November 30th, but look, that's what happens in law. The courts rule against you and you go with it and you do the best you can. So we played within the rules of what the state Supreme Court set out. And even playing within those rules, thanks to the talent that we have on our legal team and also our expert team, we came up with the best districts. And so if the Supreme Court um, takes everything at face value, um, and does what they said that they would do, they should choose our maps. Now, why is that actually okay? Well, it's okay because we want maps that ultimately are responsive to what the voters do. And so if we go back to 2002 and we look at the court-drawn maps in 2002, they actually had a pro-Republican tilt as well, about an 8% pro-Republican advantage. But remember, Democrats won total control of the Assembly and the Senate in 2008, 2009. And so all we really need are maps where th that are competitive, districts that are competitive. So even if there is a tilt, a pro-Republican tilt, and our maps have a pro-Republican tilt too, but the districts are competitive. 
And that means that it doesn't take a 57% statewide vote share for Democrats to actually tilt the playing field. And so the state Supreme Court should take our maps because they're objectively the best ones. Um, and they would be much more competitive than the current districts. Some of the, the discussion about the state Supreme Court centers on um, conservative Justice Brian Hagedorn, who has at times sided with the progressives in certain ways that essentially underscore that he is an old school conservative when it comes to like the letter of the law. And so there has been chatter, you know, Doug, that your maps might actually stand a better chance with somebody like Justice Hagedorn, who, um, while still a conservative, would still go with what actually makes the least change and still is a, a fair map. Then there's others who are like, no, Hagedorn is a conservative through and through. He, he you know, that this is not that kind of a case. Uh, do, do you feel like this is the kind of case that could come down to a four to three vote either way? Well, I think it's going to come down to a four to three vote. It almost certainly will. And, you know, Pat, I think that you, what we saw in that opinion a couple of weeks ago from the state Supreme Court, um, we had three justices who issued a majority opinion that was joined in what we call a concurrence by Justice Hagedorn. That means he agreed with the result, but he wrote a separate opinion, a concurring opinion, because he did have some different ideas. He has shown himself to, um, to be a little bit different than that other three justice block. That, that tends to vote together. The politicians, um, right. And so he, and so, you know, th this is what happens. And it's just like on the US Supreme Court with Justice Roberts, everybody goes after the swing vote. And this is what we do as lawyers. We present the best arguments that we can to that justice that we want to get and that we need to convince. Justice Hagedorn has shown himself to be, to care about procedure and process and the court's integrity and its reputation. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're hopeful because we think that we have done the best job of, of, of conforming to what the court said it requires. Um, and, um, and, you know, we think that we're taking Justice Hagedorn to face value that he's going to give, um, he's going to give a, a lot of credence to what we've done. Hey, Kirk, right. I know you want to ask about federal yeah. courts, but right bef before we leave the state Supreme Court, I want to clarify one thing. They're getting multiple maps submitted to them. They they could pick any one of them, but they could also draw their own if they chose to, right? Or or not? Not practically, no. Okay. I mean, it's such a sophisticated and difficult thing to do. For them to draw their own maps would really require the state Supreme Court to, um, uh, to get a separate independent expert. And some courts will do that. That's been done in Pennsylvania. It's been done some other places. Okay, I wasn't sure uh, if they'd gotten that yep, or not, nope. because again, anything they do, and this leads us over to Kirk, you know, there's, there's still you know, a, a federal dimension to this, Kirk. Yeah, so, so Doug, I mean, I'm an idealistic and optimistic guy, but I, this is the first time I've heard any optimism about getting a, 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 a fair ruling from the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that. My hope in my own head, because that's what I've been reading in the paper, is that the federal courts step in and say, what are you guys doing over at the Wisconsin Supreme Court? You've never done this before. How do you think that you're equipped to decide on this? You've been giving it to the federal courts for a long time. Can you explain that history? We got three minutes left before the break, but you can explain that, the hope that I'm talking about. Yeah, of course. So um, these cases have been decided in the federal courts in Wisconsin for the last four or five decades. And in August, um, we and another a different group of plaintiffs filed federal claims in the uh, federal court in Madison 
Um, and one of the claims that we filed is under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. That is a federal statute, right? And so it's kind of a basic premise um, of the court system, of the federal court system. Is if I've got a claim, if I've got a right under federal law, like under the Voting Rights Act, I have a right to pursue that claim in federal court. There, is the, there are a bunch of different legal uh, principles out there that cause the federal court to say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to wait for the state Supreme Court to do what it's gonna do. But that case is still pending in federal court. And the federal court has reserved the week of January 31st for a trial. And so if the state Supreme Court's opinion that it comes out with when it decides on what the districts are going to be, if those districts don't comply with federal law, and you know, we're specifically to be clear, we're talking about the Voting Rights Act here. If those state Supreme Court drawn districts don't comply with the Federal Voting Rights Act, then we're back in federal court. And we're arguing to the federal court that we've got a trial on January 31st. We get approved why the court should adopt our districts because it's necessary to comply with federal law. So that's what we're going to be doing. So, I mean, really quick follow up. I mean, you've got people that don't know where they live in a district yet, and they got to decide whether they're going to run for office in, in the elections in 2022. Like, what's the drop dead deadline for all this stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, for, for state legislative and congressional districts, it's really about April 10th, um, April 5th, April 10th, right around that time frame. The state, um, the, the, the federal court recognized that the date is really kind of March 1st from a practical standpoint, but it really is someplace either the beginning of March or the end of March, but it needs to be decided by then. Yeah, because that it's it, then you have to circulate the nominating petitions to even get exactly. on the ballot. And, and trust me, as the person who is probably the reason why the congressional districts are gerrymandered so that they could protect Sean Duffy from me back in 2012. I know a thing <laughs> or two about trying to get these things done and find out what district you're in because the good people of Stevens Point got quite the disruption 10 years ago and we have to wait and see what, what happens to them for this next decade. So Doug, thank you again so much, Doug Poland for the uh, update and uh, wish you all the best. We'll look forward to another update soon. Well, thanks so much guys. Appreciate you having me on tonight. Our pleasure. Hey, we will Thanks, be back Dad. a couple minutes to wrap things up. You're up north. What they do is smile in your face. All the time they want to take your place. The backstabbers. Backstabbers. They smile in your face. Welcome back to the Halls of Congress, where the OJs have the theme song of the Backstabbers. is picked by one Kirk Bangstead. I'm Pat Kreitlow. Sarah Yacoub will be back uh, next week, we hope, here on the Up North podcast. And uh, Kirk knows of which he speaks because we have been watching the insurrectionists uh, do their thing since January 6th and even prior. And there were some new developments uh, just this week that are worth talking about before we close things out. And, and basically, we wanted to localize it, because if, if you pay any attention to the news whatsoever, you are aware that Mark Meadows, the Republican congressman who then became uh, former President Donald Trump's chief of staff, apparently played a larger role than maybe some people first thought in the run-up to January 6th and what was happening since that point. Mark Meadows was uh, cooperating with the January 6th committee for a time but then decided not to, surprise, surprise, double cross. I'd never seen that before. Uh, and so Congress was looking to hold him in contempt because again, we're looking to investigate and find out who was behind an insurrection to try to disrupt or end a presidential election count that could have ended with members of Congress being executed, you know, uh, on TV for that matter. 
it was that bad. And yet, when it came time to hold Mark Meadows in contempt, you've all heard the national headlines this morning that only two Republicans supported that along with every Democrat. But Kirk, I think it's, it's worth noting what that means. It means that Tom Tiffany and Scott Fitzgerald and Gallagher and, and Style um, and, and, uh, and uh, Grothman all voted to help Mark Meadows with a cover-up of whatever he was doing uh, leading up to and on January 6th. Yeah, it's these guys were probably in a cloakroom somewhere that the, the 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 guys guarding the Capitol rushed them into a corner and were protecting them when people were flooding when terrorists like domestic terrorists were flooding our capital. These guys, their lives were in danger and their colleagues lives were in danger and they witnessed it firsthand and they voted against having any investigation of what happened right. on January yeah, forget 6th. That, that they, happened. They, yeah, they wouldn't even vote to have a, a committee, they, a yeah, bipartisan and, one. And now they're voting against Mark Meadows, who it's going to come out that this guy like was getting texts from everybody that it, said, it is gonna we come need because look at look at what just dribbled out this week was the, the texts from Fox News anchors who understood how bad it was. Um, yeah. But Meadows was also getting texts from members of Congress, and we don't yet know their identity. And I'm not going to try to give too much credit to, you know, the members of the Wisconsin delegation. But it is worth wondering, you know, if there are texts and, and phone records about what any of them might have known about attempts to interfere with or even disrupt, you know, the counting of electoral votes. And if the fact that they're working so hard to cover up the investigation only makes you wonder, does that mean they knew something either of themselves or about somebody else? Yeah, so let's just localize it even more. I mean, this podcast, we're on radio in Madison right now, but we beam this up to basically the 7th Congressional District, and that's Tom Tiffany. Now, both Pat and I have run for that Congressional District, and I guarantee you both Pat and I are not going to be running for that Congressional District in the future. This is not for our own benefit, but Tom Tiffany voted against this as well. And we... and. He votes it, voted against the insurrection, or he voted against the, the, you know, the trial of these people, and his life was in danger. I mean, there's no more traitor in my mind, you know, it, you know, and in, in the minds of the listeners in the seventh congressional district than Tom Tiffany. Well, what what cemented, you know, that that feeling of yours and others is that this is somebody who voted uh, or uh, to object to the certified election results from two states. I mean, that is literally a vote to toss out the will of the voters and try to do, you know, your own bidding instead, which is the thing another Wisconsin member of Congress, Ron Johnson, is telling the Wisconsin legislative Republicans to do is to ignore uh, the Wisconsin Elections Commission and basically take over running federal elections in Wisconsin. That's not going to happen anytime soon. But the fact that they're even willing to put that out there tells you everything you need to know. It's something we will continue to follow. Uh, with that, it's time for us to go. Kirk, thank you so much. And uh, thanks to our guests, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway and Attorney Doug Poland with the gerrymandering update. And thank you for joining us at the cabin. You can reach us by email, info at upnorthpodcast.com. And we'll talk to you next week. Good night, Kirk. Good night, guys. Good night.